Hi, this is Andrew. This is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, February the 13th, 2023. Uh, always like to get famous people. Uh, people with big brands on my show, shows that we have a little bit of muscle. About 10 years ago, I had Chris Sacker, I wouldn't necessarily call him an old friend, but he was someone I used to see from time to time on the show. He later became a, a billionaire investor. And the other thing about Chris Sacker, which many of you will know, is that um, he appeared as a guest shark on ABC's Shark Tank, one of the top uh, entertainment business shows. And uh, up until today, Chris was the only Shark Tank guy I've had on the show, but that's all changing because today we have another Shark Tank, recurring Shark. I'm not sure if my guest today has appeared on Shark more or less than Chris Sacker, but he's certainly a guy who's been on it from time to time. And he's a big time businessman, uh, done a lot of different things in his life. And uh, he has a book out, it's out uh, tomorrow, today, really. Matt Higgins, Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard and Unleash Your Full Potential. Matt is joining us uh, from one of his homes in New Jersey. Matt, congratulations on the book. Thank you. I'm glad to be only the second shark. I feel special-ish. So thank you. Oh, very special. Well, <laughs> did you know or do you know Chris? Uh, only in passing. But obviously, he's had an amazing career. So uh, I'm not sure if Chris has done a book. Why the book, Matt? You've done many other things. You've, um, you've run large companies and funds. You do a lot of investment. You've been a very successful businessman. Why invest significant amount of time in the, in the book, Burn the Boat? Especially, I, I don't suppose it's for economic reasons. No. I mean, probably I didn't know better that it would take so much time. Maybe that's the answer. No, no. Uh, my early career, uh, believe it or not, was an a, a investigative um, little muckraker uh, for a newspaper in Queens. And I've always loved communicating, love writing, love words. So that's always been in my um, DNA. Uh, and then a lot, of, a lot of what's in the book is just an attempt for me to scale the one-to-one -one conversations I've had with found uh, investors, entrepreneurs over the years. And you have all that knowledge and information. You have the audacity to think you could distill it in a readable book. So uh, about three years ago now, I started working on it. And here we are. Three years. Took you three years. Well, well I mean, propose, I'm talking about, you know, Genesis, whiteboarding, book proposal, writing it, publishing it, and then launch. It's probably it's about three years. And it's, uh, it's not a self-published book. It's with uh, William Morrow. What, why did you decide to go the traditional publishing route? Did you feel that if you self-published, it might not appear authentic? Yeah, if I'm being honest. Um, I think the, the, you know, you don't, until you go down the road, you don't quite actually know what a publisher does. So you probably ascribe maybe a little bit more than is in reality to the, uh, to the imprimatur of, of one of the big five. Um, but it's, it's, obviously it's gone great. But uh, I am fascinated by the entire industry, having gone through this. So it's yeah. Uh, how how uh, you can you, you you no one watches this, Matt. So you can be completely Perfect. truthful. Um, how horrified have you been with the, the the business practices of 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 
the big publishing industry. They're not the most um, forward-looking. I mean, there are some people, of course, in the industry who are, but generally um, it's a rather, to put it euphemistically, it's a rather old-fashioned industry, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And uh, so the emperor is very horrified. Um, we'll take a step back. So I teach at Harvard Business School on direct-to-consumer businesses, so e-com. Uh, and we actually have a subset on Amazon that's very popular. The, the point is, <clears throat> so much of what I've had to do here could have been templatized. So that part is a little bit of a riddle to me. Like, where's the deck on Amazon best practices or just just how do you tap into social media influencers at scale? Just a lot of stuff uh, seems to be very reflexive and legacy. There's a such a high premium on earned media and you know TV when the world has shifted. So everyone's lovely and amazing, but I don't. Um, I don't know why a lot of it isn't reduced and handed down. It feels like a ton of like, folklore passed on from one writer to the next. So what, so is, what, is the book in, what has the book industry done with Burn the Boats that you couldn't have done on your own? Uh, I'm not entirely sure because I haven't done it on my own. Um, so well, I, you know. you could. I mean, you could have hired some marketing people. You could have hired an editor to work with you. Uh, you could have sold online. You probably could have even get it into, got it into some bookstores. Well, let me ask you this question. So in terms of the bestseller list, do you think you can get on those bestseller lists, maybe even the Times, if you're self-published? Maybe the answer is yes. I actually don't know. Uh, I I think that's hard to get on the bestseller. Is that your goal, to get on a bestseller? No, no, no. no. I'm just asking as a data point of, uh, of you know, what, what... I think they've clamped down. I think it was much easier a few years ago, and there were companies that were designed to do that. I think now there are stricter rules. Um, well, actually, so let me, let me look, let me put it this way. It's less about what I could have done or not done. Well, just as a newcomer to the industry, there's just so many modern practices around customer acquisition and telling your story that just don't seem to be embraced that I don't really understand why. And Matt, you're a TV guy. You got a, you even look good on this. Uh, you got a, an excellent camera. Why waste your time with words? Why not just, Put it all on YouTube or on Vimeo or on Twitter. Uh, I love words, number one. I do think if you, um, we assimilate information through storytelling. So if you could tell, let's take a step back. My feeling with a lot of these business books are incredibly painfully redundant. Uh, mm. I think they're lazy and they are written like reference manuals and that's not how people learn. So my <laughs> thought is if I could package a very, you know, a, a, an important thesis to me at least about how to live a life of perpetual growth, but use storytelling, which I'm good at, with a written word, I would be doing something that maybe hasn't been done before in the genre. I mean, the, the, market, the, the market will speak and let me know if that's true or not. But my feeling was I wanted to take this principle of burn the boats going all in and use um, my experience, my relationships, different case studies to tell a story that the best feedback I've gotten is I couldn't put it down, right? And you don't hear that a lot in this genre for business books. So let's get to the book, Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard and Unleash Your Full Potential. Who, who invented the term burn the boats? Well, uh, it's uh, often ascribed to Cortez uh, in 1519. But what I found about fascinating about this phrase, if you survey almost any culture on Earth, I haven't done all of them, but there's a lot, you'll find uh, across the centuries, uh, different languages, the same basic principle of when a military strategist is outnumbered 10 to one, 
they uh, they actually it's not a metaphor in that case they literally eliminate their escape route and usually um, reduce their provisions down to just enough time to conquer the enemy and so i i was intrigued i came across incredible stories going back to china in 207 bc and all the way back to Alexander the Great, the same idea. Uh, that you, the best- you, you make reference to Sun Tzu and, of course, his famous book, uh, Art of War. It's, I don't know if it's counterintuitive, burning the boats, but it sounds, it's certainly scary and a little irrational. Why would you dump Plan B? Why even have a Plan B if, if you're going to dump it? <laughs> well, that's kind of the point. <laughs> you, should, you shouldn't have it to begin with. Now, in fairness, I am pulling forward and appropriating uh, this idea of, of burn the boats from a military context to peacetime. So the use of the word boat, in my case, is a, is a metaphor for all the things that prevent us from fully committing to our potential, internal and external. If you look at the cover, it's meant to actually evoke the idea of, uh, of a child's boat, paper boat floating in a bathroom, bathtub. Because in my experience dealing with founders and people trying to break through, uh, there's a lot of legacy baggage that holds them back. So this is an attempt for me to articulate all those metaphorical boats. But the first mandate of the book is to prove to somebody, potentially you, say that I need a plan B or I got to pay the bills, that the reality is the energy leakage that you're diverting from plan A is the reason why you're not achieving it. So try to soft survey science uh, uh, because I, I like studies. And one of the studies I pulled forward is from Wharton in 2014, where they took a group of college students and they assessed what would happen if we just let them contemplate plan B, not even have one. And they found two things. One, statistically, in a statistically significant way, much less likely to achieve the result. But two, they lost interest in it. Their intrinsic motivation to actually win was dramatically lessened. And so the case, the, the book makes the case that the reason why you're not getting what you want is because you're not going all in. You do. You, you say that it's not a military book, but you do rely in some ways on military figures to, to make your point. Julius Caesar... And but even only, uh, only, only in the introduction to substantiate it. Uh, but also bit. Zelensky, uh, who's, I guess, in a, in a sense, uh, a military leader. I'm not sure if he's burnt the boats. In well, the- he has. Actually, let's talk about that for a second. I mean, I, I use that to pull it forward because people could say, well, that's ancient thinking. We've evolved. We're so sophisticated now. Zelensky, uh, you remember that famous quote, right? When uh, President Biden said to him, you know, we believe you're going to die effectively. And so we're going to offer you an escape route. And his retort was, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. And I, I love that. That moment was a tipping point where he telegraphed to the world, A, one, I'm prepared to die. And two, he telegraphed to everybody uh, in Ukraine that we're, you know, we can pull this off. And if you, when you dissect the time before that quote and the time after, that's when people started coalescing around the cause. So it's a modern way of, of demonstrating burn the boats. So you have seven, seven takeaways, seven principles in the, in, in the book, seven ways in which we can uh, love ourselves. What's self-love? Why is self-love so important in your argument? Because I do think that the, uh, the act of embracing your full potential, a lot of it stems down from not fully uh, caring for yourself, cultivating yourself, believing in yourself. It's a general umbrella for the idea of not trusting your instincts. And so I, I, in my investing career, rely heavily on psychology. I oftentimes bring in an industrial psychologist to either fix something or assess something. So I'm just a firm believer that, as the Italians say, the fish rots from the head. So I tend to over-index. Maybe it's confirmation bias because so many of my issues I needed to address stem from early childhood issues of you know trauma. So self-love is about the willingness to believe in your capacity to just figure it out. And I find 
these sunny Instagram posts of the modern day are just so nebulous that they're not actionable. So I tried to, in a compelling way, make it also actionable without it being, you know, pedantic. What, in your view, is 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 the greatest triumph of your life? You've done a lot of things, some more successfully than others. What are you most proud of, Matt? I'm most proud of that, um, for those who don't know me, um, I was born into pretty dire circumstances in Queens, New York, a dirty little shoebox apartment with a mother who was fading and I grew up on government cheese, boxes of cheese from the USDA. So pretty dire but and pretty desperate. And there are two competing instincts at the same time. One was to try to save your mother like any little boy. And the other was to, to get out of here and to have a life of my own. And so around 13, 14, I realized the cavalry wasn't coming, increasingly depressed about my situation. And I came up with a life hack, actually, which was back then, if you took a GD, which is a high school equivalency diploma, and skipped high school, theoretically, and did well enough, theoretically, you could go to college. And so I had the whole weight of conventional thinking against me saying, that's crazy. You're never going to shake the stigma of being a high school dropout. And I had to actually sabotage my education so people would write me off, literally leave me alone. And so I, I failed every single class except for typing, served me well here. And, and I went through with it. And that one chess move pulled forward my entire professional career. By the time I was 17, I went to my prom as you know, president of the debate team. And I had all these experiences earlier because I, I had the endorsement of being a college student. And so the whole book stems from that singular move when I burned the boats and trusted my instincts above everybody else. And this is something I talk about in the book. Opportunity arrives before the tipping point of evidence, right? And the magnitude of an opportunity is inverse to the amount of evidence to support it. So there was a big opportunity for me to get out of poverty, drop out of high school, get a GD, but nobody had done it before. There was no evidence, you know, empirically, you know, or qualitatively, and everyone said it was a bad idea, but that that was the, the magnitude of what I was doing. And plus, when people don't have context in your life because you're hiding shame, their advice is terrible, right? So a lot of the book is trying to show that that's a pattern. That's not just one exceptional young man growing up in Queens that I feel like I found something about the universe that I, uh, I can share. But that's, that to me was probably my proudest moment and the best decision I ever made. What would have become of uh, Matt Higgins had you not done that? Um, I think, I don't know, actually, I can't even imagine a world in which I didn't do that because I, I never would have made, it was too much pressure to take care of your mother and then work at a deli at midnight. I never would have completed high school anyway, because I would have succumbed. And I would have probably been like the other kids in the neighborhood who are still maybe sitting on that stoop right now, having a beer. Nothing would have become of me. And what became of your mom? So... This is part of the story too. I mean, I, 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 when I dropped out of high school and started college, it became a race against the clock and doing everything I could to go from making $5 an hour at a deli overnight to being able to take care of her, but honestly flee her at the same time from being truthful. And so I went and became a little cub reporter at the Queens Tribune, writing uh, the Trib Action Desk, which was my column, muckraking column, would often partner with you know, real newspaper reporters at the Times or whatever to amplify my stories, won all these awards, eventually got to work for Mayor Giuliani version 1.0. <laughs> and, uh, and by the time I was 26, I was offered the job of press secretary of New York. So I went from, you know, McDonald's and, you know, the deli to press secretary of New York, and I was making $100,000 a year. And I finally had the ability to maybe get an apartment of my own, take care of my mother, 
she pleaded with me actually not to go to work that day. She was on oxygen. And then, you know, at 11 o'clock that morning, she died. Mm. So, you know, the greatest professional triumph in my life, something I've been working so hard to achieve a little bit of freedom for me and for her. Uh, she died. So part of my message with the book is to stay urgent and intentional because the one, the cavalry isn't coming. So you need to rely on yourself and there are no happy endings, right? There are just, there are just no guaranteed. They're not that there are no happy endings. They're just not guaranteed. And what's the biggest mistake do you feel you've made? What, what's your biggest regret in your life? My biggest regret is when I was pushing forward with, with an idea when I was on that sort of bleeding edge of innovation, all the energy I would spend lobbying for people uh, to believe in it, that didn't matter. Like we spend a lot of unnecessary emotional energy trying to bring people along that, that technically don't matter in terms of advancing your idea. And it's because we're vulnerable, we're insecure, we don't believe in ourselves. And I have spent so much energy scanning the environment to make sure I'm safe, to bring people along that just didn't matter. And I wish I could get that time back. So let's get to the seven instincts. Well, they're not seven instincts. One of them is instincts. Uh, so maybe you can define what you mean by that and, and why instincts are, are, are one of the seven takeaways from the book. Well, I, I think if you if you go back to the military context, you know, why is it so effective when uh, when you have little options, right? Why do people perform better when they have fewer choices and when the stakes are on the line? It's because they're relying on a different motivational system and that's survival. So everyone can relate to this. When you're in a crisis, you actually seem to make better decisions or at least clearer decisions. You act more decisively. And what, what system are we relying on? It's instincts, intuition, pattern recognition, however you define it cumulatively. And I believe we all have it. And I believe we sell ourselves short. And instead we're conditioned to go to Barnes and Noble and pick up my book or watch a TED talk or listen to you. When in reality, we always bypass auditing ourselves to see what do we have to bring to the table. That's instincts. And where do they come from? Are they just in us? Are they innate or are they a consequence, as you suggest, of, of experience? I think, they're, I think they, they're innate to the extent that we are wired with our own navigation systems to just survive. And there's a lot of good primordial stuff there. And then largely it's, it's what we pick up from pattern recognition from our context, our environment. But do you think sometimes with instincts, and, and this probably reflects our own psychology, is either we only remember the ones we failed or we only remember the ones that we succeeded. It's always easy to discount something to prove to yourself that your instincts are either really good or really bad. I love that question. I talk a little bit about this in a book, right? So a big part of the message of the book is about self-awareness being the greatest form of arbitrage entirely within your control and self-awareness can be cultivated. So the ability to look within and avoid the inevitable, make those course corrections by being aware. But I think there is a subset of success that actually does the opposite. They're very good. And this is the billionaire subset potentially that is able to absorb wins and sort of enhances their self-worth and self-esteem and then completely repel losses in an almost delusional way where basically you redefine what winning looks like and say, I meant to do that, or I'm glad that that happened. It's the, it's the Steve Jobs ontology. It, it is a Steve Jobs, and you know, it's uh, it's teetering on the edge of narcissism delusion, right? And and but it's probably necessary for this kind of incredible breakthrough success. I'm not wired that way. I'm too intellectually curious about what I get wrong, and also probably just too insecure to be that person. But there is a subset where I think not, a lot of this just doesn't apply. 
Do you think you have a personality type? Um, you said you're not like Jobs. Who knows what he was really like? Maybe a little bit of the Elon Musk. Is he insecure or is he more in the Jobsian category? Probably more in the Jobsian category. Um, are there sort of national, I mean, not that you're na not national, but are there really famous entrepreneurs who you think you're like? You, you're sort of a chip off the old entrepreneurial block of one kind or another? That's a great question. I I don't really think so. I tend to be like a horse with blinders on. I'm just competing against, you know, myself. I know that's cliche, but it's true. I, I, um, I don't, I think my, my gift is just, I'm unrelenting uh, and I'm very defiant. I'm a, I'm a loner by nature, an introvert, uh, sort of with a given some degree of charisma. So people don't, don't really believe that, but I am, uh, but, but I'm very defiant. Yeah. And then some of your principles are almost, contradictory on the one hand you've got self-reliance and on the other hand you've got partnership are they is it possible to combine those two or do you really have to decide okay i'm more of a loner so self-reliance is more important than partnership i'll try to partner but it's not gonna ever be my real strength no but if you go back to what i was saying actually we all have partners unless you know, you know, i'm married happily right so that that statement was more self-reliant means the ability to be self-generative and not be codependent or dependent upon somebody to complete you, right? So we all have partners. I'm trying to make the point in that principle of saying a partner should be a force multiplier, not somebody that you look to complete. When I teach at Harvard, it's one of the questions we always ask the co-founders because the students are fascinated, trying to figure out when should I choose a partner and how do I choose a partner? And on the how do I choose a partner, the answer always surprises everyone in the class because they say value overlap is the most important factor, not complementary skill sets. And a lot of those students, because they're vulnerable or insecure or think they can't figure it out, oh, well, I'm, a, I'm a numbers person, so I need a marketer or vice versa. And every co-founder, successful co-founder, says the opposite. So they're looking for force multipliers and alignment, not, not the other way around. So, and I think that applies to relationships too. I know you, you want your book and your principles to be original, and some of them are, maybe as a combination. But I mean, some of this stuff's just standard business yeah, I actually don't think I don't Alliance, think Carnegie. I mean, that's been that that's a, a principle that has been preached for yeah, I don't know, think hundred years. Yeah, I don't think I actually don't think there's an original thought in the book. I mean, I think it's a, the ability to package, present, and illustrate that makes teaching teaching, right? I mean, who am I to say I've uncovered an original principle? But I think the ability that what I've done to well, you want to at least pretend you have because otherwise people aren't going to read the book well you said nobody read nobody watches your or listens to this so i feel like i could be oh, yeah, honest true. with you yeah <laughs> no well you no, on the couch. but that's like i hate the audacity of when people say you know this is all original no at the i put in a ton of work to illustrate articulate and present this information and i think a lot of the concepts i have in here are very hard to put your finger on i'll give you an example there's a, a section in there where I talk about corporate saboteurs. The good part about writing a book is you get to give names to things that, you know, don't have names. But so I talk about this um, archetype of bad leadership called a withholder. We all know what this is. It's the boss or, or person in your life who is denying approval that you know you're, 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 you're worthy of because you know you performed well, but they're denying it because they know that you're a pleaser and it's destabilizing to your personality type, right? So I talk, I try to articulate a lot of these forces that act upon us that make it hard to realize our full potential. Is that new? No, because it exists in a world. Is my articulation of it interesting and semi-novel? I think it is. Perhaps the most personalized principle is the healing from trauma. Most or, or 
Quite a lot. I mean, it's quite rare to have, I think, a very successful entrepreneur who has had your trauma. How does that work, healing from trauma? How did you do it? <laughs> by writing the book, partly. Um, by uh, I, I had a, something in my life that brought me to my knees, to be honest. I mean, I had cancer, but that, that did not do it, but went through a failed marriage. And by virtue of having that sort of failure on display when I had to find myself as being always successful early in life, that really had made me have to reconstruct my self-worth. And that began embracing um, self-awareness and the healing process, right? It's, I think it all begins with the willingness to look within instead of looking without for healing, soothing answers. But that's how it began for me. The reason why I highlight it, maybe it's a degree of confirmation bias, but I don't think entirely. When I meet somebody who is a bad leader or, you know, refusing to be self-aware, sort of ask the critical questions, refusing to acknowledge failure and change course, there's usually something blocking them. And maybe the word trauma is overused, but it, but it is a legacy issue, right? And it could go back, honestly, goes a lot to parent issues and trying to prove your worth to your dad. So they say, I'm proud of you. Like, you'd be shocked how much in business this stuff comes up because the people running companies are human, right? So they have they have human psychological problems. Do you think, though, that our therapeutic culture is colonizing business or maybe vice versa? I mean, it sounds to me like some of this stuff is more appropriate on the psychologist's chair on their, on their couch than, um, than in, in a boardroom. Or are you suggesting that the two are really the same thing? I'm suggesting that uh, that that they are the same thing and that if you want to be very successful, you this has to have a place at the table, the psychological issues. I, I mean, it's so obvious. It's only not obvious to a private equity firm who wants the answers to be in an Excel sheet. The worst deals I've ever done or when I've done when I've drafted by hind somebody else's diligence at a supposed massive private equity firm, like the kind that invested in FTX or something. And then you look at the diligence, say, well, you have reams of experts but you didn't you didn't notice the fact that the uh, that everyone can't stand the CEO, you know, or the guy's not made, returning your phone. You call. FDX. I mean, Sam Bankman Fried certainly convinced a lot of people to put hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars into his Ponzi scheme. Um, so he, he got away with it. Uh, it seems as if a lot of our most successful business leaders uh, we mentioned jobs. I mean, a brilliant man. Uh, uh, Elon Musk, another brilliant man, they have an element of the psychotic about them, don't they? They're not the most self-aware people. I think that's true. I do think that there's a, there's a degree of outlier success that is extraordinary and, and, and just requires so much, so much heat, so much energy that it does tend to draw these kinds of characters. I don't think FDX is an example of that. I think he's garden variety fraud. I think FTX is more a commentary on our willingness to suspend our own judgment for supposed expertise. When if when you reconstruct it, you say, wait a second, he didn't want a board of directors, not a single investor or whatever had a board seat. I mean, like there were so many, so many signals. So I think it's that I think feel like FTX has almost so little to do with Sam and everything to do with supposed expertise of investors. What about the kinds of entrepreneurs who divide their lives in half? Bill Gates comes to, to mind, a, a psychotic first half of his life, and then a highly responsible, um, selfless second part to his career. Can you or should you build careers like that? Or is burning your boats all about a single narrative? 
No, it's not about a single narrative. It's about um, alignment of energy focused on a single goal without allowing energy leakage because of hedging and hesitating. But I think actually what Bill Gates does makes a ton of sense. I had the pleasure of spending a day with Warren Buffett and I, and I was talking about this topic of, you know, of, ba of basically sequencing your philanthropic activity versus doing it concurrently with your career. And he was saying how much criticism he had gotten because he believed that it was better in his hands to compound so that it could grow faster and then redistribute, you know, later on in his life. So I think the way Bill Gates has lived his life makes 100% sense. Like you've achieved almost everything you can or want to in business. And then you use your energy to both redistribute wealth, intellect, energy. Um, and so it makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, I mean, he I don't know if he's burnt the boats, but he certainly burnt his money. I mean, uh, Jeff Bezos <laughs> has done the same thing. There's no yep. plan B for, for either of those guys. You got the E word in uh, in the book, but not the A word. You you talk about empathetic leadership. Empathy is a very fashionable word these days. There's no authenticity, which is to your credit, Matt. Um, why? What about empathy? It's it's such a it's such a popular fashionable word. What is it about empathy that's so important in terms of leadership? Uh, two reasons. This just sort of makes sense if we analyze ourselves personally. Uh, and it's drawn from my experience having cancer. When I had testicular cancer, uh, you know, I have my tes testicle removed. You only get 24 hours notice and then you're going under the knife and you're like, well, I want to get comfortable with the idea of this important part of my anatomy being gone, but you have no time. And so uh, I was so concerned about being vulnerable, being targeted, losing my job. I was running the business of the Jets at that point that a day later, I show up at a dinner with all the coaches to prove how tough I am with an ice bag in between my legs. And I, I give a little toast to brandish my new tagline, you know, that I was putting on dog tags on my neck at that point saying half the ball is twice the man. And I bring, I surf at that story to say, this was the New York Jets, right? This is the New York Jets. Yeah. So uh, the 28 version of Matt Higgins thinks like, wow, look at my bravado. The older version looks back at that and say, Think about what I was telegraphing, how insecure I was. But also, if you worked for me at the time and you had any lesser trauma than having your testicle removed, you would know that you were expected to suck it up and go to work. That's not empathetic leadership. So I was denying myself so, right, empathy because I would have taken a month off and reflected on the meaning of life or something or gone on a, a sojourn. So that's my point. People use empathy and it like has no meaning. I'm trying to specifically say that if you're a manager and you deny yourself empathy, you're, it's going to telegraph through the entire organization and you're going to set a terrible example. And the second use of empathy, why it's important, empathy is the ability to step into another's shoes, assess the situation, feel their pain and understand it, right? That gives you a 360 perspective on everybody around you. If you are not empathetic, you have a, a you know a 180 perspective, right? And so I'm using it, hopefully, I'm using it in a way it's accessible, but I do believe it's a really important concept as being a, a manager. Who's the most empathetic person you've ever met? <sighs> Who's the most empathetic? Probably my wife, thankfully, because <laughs> I married her, which worked out well, but yeah. So the book comes with blurbs, like all these books. You've got some famous people. You've got Arnold Schwarzenegger, who makes sense in terms of burn the boats. He's not a man, I think, who has much time for a plan B and his, his, his life has reflected that mostly in, in, in successful terms. But you also have a blurb from Kathy Wood, who's the founder and CEO of ARK Invest that's lost a fortune recently in, in big tech as an investor. Uh, do you think that it's appropriate 
for someone like Kathy Wood to be in favor of the burn the boat? Shouldn't she have not read the book and actually burnt some of her boats? <laughs> She's absolutely appropriate. I mean, we'll, we'll skip her career journey, which is also fascinating, but she has a, she has a saying, you know, the truth will win out. And I do believe innovation will win out. I deliberately included her knowing exactly the performance of her friend. I did not care. I think she perfectly illustrates the principles of this book. It's so easy for anyone to throw stones in the middle. Uh, they were celebrating her when she called Tesla correctly. They will celebrate her again. And uh, even, even if they don't, it doesn't matter. She represents the idea of being fully committed to your beliefs and, and, and going all in. There's a certain religiosity, I think, to this. Um, Harold <laughs> Macmillan, the uh, English conservative prime minister, I think it was in the 1950s, he changed his mind on something. And someone asked him and he said, uh, dear boy, when, when the events change, my mind change, or when the facts change, I change my mind. Uh, the world changes, Matt. I mean, thinking about Kathy Wood, I mean, at a certain point, she'll go bankrupt unless she perhaps changes her strategy. Aren't there times where we really need a plan B? Is it really wise to just dump it and well, just always go for broke, always go for the big win, always, always uh, commit to what one fundamentally believes in? But let's assume that um, Kathy's definition of plan A is to have a successful fund and to deliver great returns to her investors, right? That's the plan A. So yeah, having a plan B would be saying, maybe I'll fold up shop. Maybe I'm no good at this. Or well, maybe it's, but you know, Kathy Wood invested. She was very bullish on crypto. Uh, that hasn't proved to be particularly successful. There are times where one makes mistakes and one has to be human. Yeah, Isn't it human to have a plan B? It's, it, is, it is human to want to have a plan B, but plan B doesn't serve plan A. So of course it's human, human to be anxious, human to have doubt. Uh, what it, what plan A also entails though, is the ability to iterate, right? If, if her ultimate plan A is to have a successful fund and if the thesis is not playing out successful, that's her plan A and then she'll have to make the adjustments. But um, I don't think they're mutually, I don't think iterating and adjusting and adapting is at all inconsistent with plan A. It's quite the opposite. It's why I married the idea with self-awareness. Self-awareness gives you the unlock to figure out how you should make those iterations. You're just concluding that her iterations are, should be abandoned crypto or whatever you're concluding. I, I just, I said, just saying they're not inconsistent. Um, that's, well, one, that's actually my favorite blurb in the whole book, to be honest. Yeah, you're, not the first, well, you're not the first person who said that. And I said, yeah, uh, well, I mean, it's again, it doesn't, it's obvious that she is someone who, Hasn't burned her boats, but one wonders whether at some point, oh, she's someone who has burned her boats, whether that was particularly wise because she's got nowhere to go. Uh, uh, finally, um, Matt, um, uh, Jay Shetty said, or another big business writer said, this book will change your life. Um, you teach at Harvard Business School, you meet a lot of people, you you're a you're a shark tanker and all the rest of it. Do you think most people want to change their lives? <laughs> Such a great question. I do talk about this in interviews. If you are a committed cynic and you actually believe the die is cast and the deck is stacked against you, which I could have concluded as that kid, uh, you should definitely not buy this book. You will you will you will be skeptical. You'll be cynical. You think the platitudes are don't apply. So I do think you have to be a dreamer and wired to want to change or get better to like the book. Otherwise, you'll dismiss it as just like rhetoric. So. I don't Excellent. think